So please take out your Bibles and turn to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. Last week, um, we went to this beautiful psalm, and we talked about the fact that this, this psalm um, is, is, gives us um, our theology of worship. This psalm gives us a theology of worship. There are seven imperatives, and we looked at three of them last week. We looked at the imperative, make a joyful noise, and we talked about how that imperative talks uh, or lets us know that we ought to shout to the Lord. And this is the kind of shout in which, in which you don't have to sing well. It's the kind of shout in which we give glory to God and praise to God for what he has done for us. And we just cry out to the Lord with gladness. And then we talked about serving the Lord, serving the Lord with gladness. And we talked about how we, as God's people, as we serve the Lord, there's all sorts of unexpected blessings that come with that. That we're looking for God to work one way, but through the service of God, we actually see God working in the ways that are most, uh, that are most beneficial for us, not the ways in which we necessarily think. And then we talked about the third imperative in verse number two. Come into his presence with singing. We mentioned that this is gospel-laden. The fact, the call to come is in recognition that in Genesis chapter 3, we as God's people, we as the people made in God's image, were told to leave the garden. There was an angel with a flaming sword that showed that we were never allowed back in God's earthly tabernacle again. And yet, as we did this morning and as we do every single Sunday morning, there's a call to worship, a call to come before the Lord our God and to worship him. And that call to come is made possible by Jesus Christ, who bids us come that we might fellowship with him. Those were the three um, that we dealt with. Um, today we're going to deal with the next four. Uh, verse number three, no. And then in verse number four, enter, give, and bless. Those are the four that we're going to look at. Now, last week, I think most of you remember what we did, where we had one section did uh, a couple of verses, and then we had another section did the other verses. And we're going to go and do that again today. Now, it's kind of tricky. No, it's not that tricky, because verse number five, we all get to say together. So this side of the sanctuary is going to say verse number three, and this side of the sanctuary is going to say verse number four, and then we're going to all say it together in verse number five. So please stand, because if we're going to do this, we're going to do this right, we're going to stand, and we're going to face each other, and this side say verse three, this side say verse number four, and then we'll all say it together in verse number five. And we're really going to say it aloud to one another, because remember, we're encouraging one another to worship. So let's read God's word together. Let's begin with my left side here. Uh, verse number three. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him Bless his name altogether, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. 
And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. Please be seated. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we certainly thank you that indeed this is your word, your holy word. And as we've read this morning, you have called your people to make a joyful noise, to serve you, to come before your presence, to know that you are God, to enter your gates with thanksgiving, to give thanks to you and to bless your name, uh, to enter as we enter into this space. And then also, Lord, that we as your people ought to know that you are good and that your steadfast love endures forever and your truth to all generations. Father, this psalm reminds us of your goodness and grace that is overflowing in worship. And Lord, as we have gathered here to worship, we gather in the full expectations that you're here and that you will bless us. Help us now enliven our hearts as we hear what you have to say uh, to us from your word. And so be with us now, your people, in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I mentioned, um, the last portion of this verse we'll look at from verse 3 through 5, the very last four imperatives. To know that the Lord, he is God, to enter his gates with thanksgiving to, and his courts with praise, to give thanks to him and to bless his name. For the Lord is good and his, state, his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. These verses are our theology of worship. When you think about worship, this is what should come to mind. That God is not just interested in us coming as a matter of mere formality. This is just cultural. This is just what we do. But more than that, he said that worship is designed for us to connect with him and to be in relationship with him. So there is an expectation when we come to the house of the Lord that God is going to do something special and unique in such a way that he doesn't do outside of worship. That's what this psalm is driving us to. And so what I want to do is I want to look again at the remaining four imperatives as we expand our theology of worship and see why it is a blessed thing for us to gather here in worship, right? We're, we're a body. Uh, we're a unique body in the Flintstone uh, community. And so for us, worship is special because we get to worship with the people in this area. We get to worship together. So let's look at the first imperative uh, in verse number three. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of this pasture. Now, verse number three is so important to this passage because verse number three tells us why or how it is that we worship. It sort of rounds it out by saying that we worship God by knowing who he is. Knowledge is important in worship. Now, most people, when they think about worship, they think about the experiential side. We get to come in and we get to experience what it is to be in union and communion with each other. But this verse tells us that we ought to know God. In other words, we need to worship God not only with our hearts, but also with our minds. Now, there are many uh, places of worship where you can go in which their uh, worship tends to be all about the experience, how you and I feel when we come into worship. There's a high priority on how we feel. And so the experience matters. 
But the problem with having a worship service that only focuses on how we feel and the expressions of our worship and not on the mind and engaging the mind is that those sorts of worship after a while leads to a shallowness in how we come before the Lord. And it could lead in profound theological error. But the opposite is true as well. Um, We're a part of a denomination that is known as a heady denomination. In fact, one of the monikers you can say about the Reformed community is that we're the frozen chosen. How many times you've heard that, right? And the reason why that moniker is put on us is because we're known for our theology. We're known for for having men in the pulpit that, that preach a rich and deep theology. And by the way, that's good, and you should celebrate that. But we're not known for our experience in worship, the heart aspect of worship. We're not known for having expressive worship services. Now, I think some of that is changing, but the reality is that is true of us. Now, what happens if you have a worship that's only focused on the head and not the heart? Well, it leads to dead orthodoxy. It leads to people believing that if only they believe the right thing and maybe come in and do the right thing, then they're right with God. But the heart is left out of worship. And notice how God is intent on making sure both are present. We're called to make a joyful noise, that we're called to serve the Lord with gladness. With everything we're asked to do with our head, equally we're asked to do the same thing with our hearts. And by the way, this is Jesus' point in John chapter 4. Remember, he goes to the woman at the well, and they're having a conversation. And the woman is talking about worshiping on this mountain or that mountain. And Jesus says, wait a minute. The hour is coming, and now is, where the true worshiper is called to worship God in what? Spirit and truth. Both are important. Both are important when you come into worship. The spirit aspect and what he's talking about is this. Because God is spirit, we have to worship him with our emotions. We have to worship him with our hearts, all of it. That we can't come into worship and be dead and lifeless. That's an oxymoron. Now all of us express our worship differently, but worship must be heartfelt. We must worship him in spirit, Jesus says. But not only that, in truth. And the truth is the truth of this word. However we worship God must come not only with experience, but in truth. Or to put it a different way, worship isn't all about just engaging the heart. It's engaging the mind. Now, what is it that we ought to know about God in order to have true worship? Look at the passage in verse number 3. The first thing it says that we need to know that the Lord, He is God. In other words, we need to know that Yahweh, Lord, is Elohim. Now, why is that significant? Well, the Jews knew who the Lord was, right? He was Yahweh. He was the covenant-keeping God. He was the God that entered into relationship. But the problem is everyone had their own personal God that they worshipped. And so the psalmist is saying, know that the God who entered into covenant with you, Yahweh, the Lord, He is also Elohim. He's also the creator, the creator God of heaven. Now, that's not the only thing we ought to know, that the Lord is God. Yahweh is Elohim. He's the God of heaven that we worship. He also said that he made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now, in one sense, 
God has made us physically, has he not? All of us in this building are created in God's image. Each and every one of us bear the image of God in terms of our intellect, in terms of our call to exercise dominion, in terms of us coming inside of here and being of humanity. Uh, That's one aspect that we're born physically. But the psalmist here is also talking about the fact that all of us are born spiritually as well. We've been born again. Notice what he says. It is he who made us, made us physically, but also made us alive in Christ. And we are his. He has put the Holy Spirit in us. Then he goes on to say that we are his unique people and the sheep of his pasture. And we know what that means, right? Because we studied Psalm 23, that we are the sheep of God, stinky, dirty sheep. Remember, we talked about that, right? That's who we are. And so the psalmist tells us what we ought to know. Now, the question is, why is this, verse number four, so integral to, uh, verse number three, sorry, so integral to worship? Why is it that knowledge of God and knowledge of self is so important? Well, John Calvin, in his book, uh, Institute of the Christian Religion, actually tells us. Most of us are familiar with that. If you're not, I highly recommend it. It's not light reading by any stretch of the imagination, but it's good reading. And if you took the Institute of the Christian Religion and you go to page one, section one, here's what Calvin says. He says, nearly all wisdom or knowledge we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Now, what's Calvin saying here? Well, Calvin is saying this, that if we are to worship God rightly, then we have to know who God is, and we also have to know who we are. That's integral to knowing God. Now, even though both of these are intertwined, Calvin said that knowing God is more important, knowing who he is, knowing that we are in relationship with him. And Calvin says that when we know God rightly, that tells us a little bit about who we are. Now, this is important. Um, I'm a part of a generation. I'm, I'm the sort of the youngest you can go in terms of the Gen X generation, right? Um, and if, depending on where you, you land, um, I, I can also be the, the oldest millennial, right? And, and there's something about our generation that interests me, and, and that is we are the generation that's filled with doubt. We're that generation that has the identity crisis, right? And the reason why we're filled with doubt and the reason why we have this identity crisis should not surprise you, because we're also the most secular generation in our society, We're also the generation that um, has the lowest uh, amount of people that actually believe in God. Now, some people say that's a mere correlation, but I don't think so. I think it's causation. I think that you can draw a straight line from the fact that my generation believes in God so little, that there's so few of us that actually believe and know that the Lord is God, that we have such a, a low view of who God is and Because of that, we have a low view who we are, and that manifests itself in doubt, that manifests itself in an identity crisis. That's why the psalmist is saying it is vitally important that we know that the Lord, Yahweh, is the creator God, because then that tells us exactly who we are. And let's pause for a moment and think about who we are. Who are you? Well, number one, you're the one who is created in the image of God. 
And because you're created in the image of God, you are given a privileged status before God. Think about it. There are people in our society today that have been given privileged status. The President of the United States is one of them, right? Um, you can't, last time I checked, you can't threaten the President of the United States. Why not? Well, because he has a privileged status. Um, you, don't have, uh, you don't have the right to go up to the President of the United States and heckle him or throw things at him because you'd be tackled by the Secret Service, right? We treat the President of the United States special because of the status that we've placed on him as a nation. Well, do you realize the same thing is true of you? That because you are made in the image of God, God treats you with a special status. And may I add, we ought to treat each other with that same special status. This is why we need to be careful of how we treat one another and what we say to one another. You know, my, me and my wife, we, we sort of, um, there's different layers to this with, with our relationship. On one layer, right, I treat her well because she is one created in the image of God. On another level, I treat her well because I am married to her, right? Um, on another level, I treat her well because she is a Christian. There's all these different layers because she, is, because she is in that status with God and, of course, that status with me, that I treat her well and that her and I have a relationship that's based on all these layers. Well, the same thing is true broadly for you and I. Uh, because you're created in the image of God, I treat you with that exalted status. Before, because we're Christians and we minister together, I treat you with that exalted status because that's what God has called us to do. But notice also... Knowing who we are actually enables to, us to worship God well. When you and I realize that we are a sinner, and when you and I realize our need for God, that is supposed to drive you and I to the cross. When we sit down and realize that, that we are, are not only sinners, but we are in a desperate state that forces us to look at God and see God for who he truly is, the one who is exalted and high and lifted up. Notice with me in verse number four, our, our second cluster of imperatives. Notice it says that we are to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, that we ought to give thanks to him and bless his name. Now, this cluster of imperatives here demonstrates our need for thankfulness when we come, when we come into worship. In fact, one commentator uh, and one scholar said this, that this particular uh, verse, verse number four, with its cluster of imperatives, is where this psalm gets its name. If you look on top in your Bibles, it said a psalm for thanksgiving. Well, verse number four is where this comes from, that the essence of true worship is thanksgiving. You and I, when we come into the house of the Lord more than anything else, need to come with a spirit of thanksgiving. And the imagery of the gate actually points it out. Notice with me in verse number four, he says, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Now, why is that significant? Well, think of what the gates in the ancient Near East, or to a society in the ancient Near East, meant. The gate was the main access point to the city. And once you were inside the gate, you were given complete access to whatever was in the city whether it was food or grain or any kind of trading, all of that happened at the city. But next, it's, uh, the, the gates of the city was where all the prominent leaders in the city gathered together. You saw this um, in the book of Genesis with Lot, that Lot was at the gates of Sodom. 
And then, of course, um, Absalom was at the gates of his father's kingdom, and he was able to, uh, to influence people at the gates. And so that's the second reason, that the prominent members of the city was at the gate. But notice the third reason why the gates were important. Because the gates were the most vulnerable place in the city. And because of that, it was heavily guarded. And if you were allowed through the gates of the city, that means that you were welcomed in the city. That you now are given free reign about the city. And think about that for a moment, beloved. That the gates of a city meant that you had access to the city. The gate of the city is where the prominent leaders were. And so you were given the wisdom and the knowledge of the city. And finally, it was the most vulnerable. Therefore, it was the most guarded part of the city. And if you were led in through the gates, this meant you had full and complete access to the city. Does this all begin to sound familiar? Let me help you remember. Remember when Jesus said in John, number, uh, John 10, verse 9, I am the gate. Anyone who enters through me will be saved. That's what Jesus meant. We enter into the kingdom of God through the gates of his sanctuary because it is the main access point. Jesus Christ is. That through Jesus we're given the wisdom of the city and how we should live. That through Jesus, um, even though the gates of the heavenly city are heavenly guarded, we as God's people now have access and we can enter in. And because of that, we enter in with great joy. Great joy and excitement. Now, this spirit of thankfulness in verse number four that we see, that we enter into his gates with thanksgiving, we enter his courts with praise, we give thanks to him and to bless his name. This spirit of thankfulness is integral to who we are as Christians. We ought to be a thankful people. Recently, I read a study. Um, the study was found in the University of Berkeley detailing the benefits of giving thanks. And here's what it said. It said that cultivating thanksgiving leads to better health outcomes, overcome drug addictions, leads to a happier person, less selfless, and helped with depression. And they noted all of these things that lead, uh, through thankfulness, lead to better outcomes. And what I noticed about this study was this. They focused a lot on the act of giving thanks, and they focused a lot on the benefits of giving thanks. But you know the one thing they didn't focus on? Who should we give thanks to? Now pause for a moment. Imagine a bunch of people all around you that are giving thanks. But they don't, they're not giving thanks to anyone in particular. They've been told that all you have to do is give thanks for all the things in your life. But they're never told who they're giving thanks to. So as they give thanks, who do you think they're giving thanks to? Who do you think they're giving thanks for their job for? Or who do you think they're giving thanks for their relationships for? Who do you think they're giving thanks to for their homes or their cars and all the good things that are happening in their life? Well, they're giving thanks to themselves. Yes, thanksgiving is a good thing, and we should encourage people to give thanks because it does lead to all of these things. But if we don't know who it is that we're giving thanks to, the reality of the matter is we're giving thanks to ourselves, and inherently we'll, we'll become selfish. Inherently we become um, covetous and, angry and arrogant and self-centered. We lose the joy and we become distant from God 
because we're no longer giving God thanks, but we're giving ourselves thanks as a result. And this is why Paul said in Thessalonians chapter 5 that the will of God is for us to give thanks. Why is the will of God for us to give thanks? Well, because thanksgiving puts us in a place where we realize that everything we have comes from God. Having a spirit of thanks causes us to be less selfish, less covetous. Having a spirit of thanks allows us to have true joy because we're not focusing on ourselves. You know, um, recently, I, you know, every now and then you have a, a, a sort of, um, I don't know, you call it a Job moment or a Jonah moment, but you know what I'm saying, right? Where you start to look around and you start to say to yourself, well, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And you start being bummed out because this isn't the way it should be in your life. And maybe this situation isn't working out your, um, itself in life. And I so happened to be uh, studying for today's message. And I realized, um, I, or I got to verse number four in my study, and I started writing down all the things that I'm thankful for. And as I wrote down all the things that I was thankful for, I immediately started thanking God for them specifically, Right? So I wrote down my family. I wrote down the fact that the Lord has blessed me with a congregation. I wrote down the fact that the Lord has blessed me with a nice home and a nice area and the like. And as I wrote down all these things, it was good to write those things and be reminded about writing those things. But the key element was me specifically thanking the Lord for those things. Because I began to see what the Lord has done for me and the manifold blessings in which the Lord has delivered to me. And beloved, in that moment, I was freed from thinking, poor me, that things aren't exactly the way I had hoped that they would be. All because I had stopped and considered what the Lord had done. Now, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you had a day where you portioned out to give thanks to God for what he has given for you? Or do you spend more time complaining and wishing that things were different? Do you spend more time looking at your life and wishing that things were different or you had a different job or you had a different situation? Are you pausing and giving thanks to God for where he has you and for what he's doing? Listen, I would love uh, for us not to be able to have two services and separate it. I would love for us to, be, to have one service where we're all together and we're worshiping God all together. I would love for us to, to have free reign where we're eating food together and sharing each other's germs. But that's not where we are right now, right? Um, that's not where we are right now. We're in a space where we can't do that. And listen... It, I promise you, there's no one in this church more bummed than me that I don't get to share germs with you, right? Uh, no one. Because, listen, I love the church. I love God's people. I love the fellowship. I love that we get to come together. And I love to hug. If you, as, as some of you know that. I'm a hugger, right? And, and every time I go to hug somebody, I have to be reminded, you know, I have to do one of these. Oh, you know, can't do it. Can't do it. Um, why? Well, you know, and, and, and I, I have to be honest, that, that weighs on me. It really does. Because I feel, I'm like, God, what are you doing? This is, you know, this is why I'm here. This is, this is what the church is for. And, and these things aren't happening. And, and every so often, your pastor has to sit down and remind myself of the goodness of the Lord and what he has allowed us to have. But it's not just reminding myself of it, but being conscious to give 
thanks to God for what he has done for us. That's the essence of what verse number four is saying. That as we come into the space today, we come with the full uh, acknowledgement of what God has done for us, and we give thanks to him as a result. This is your turn to give thanks to God right here, right now. Now, notice the very final um, portion of this text, and that's verse number five. So we looked at what it means to know that the Lord, he is God, and why that's important for worship, because knowledge of who we are helps us to worship God better. Knowledge of who God is helps us as well to worship God better. We looked at what it means to enter his gates with thanksgiving and how thanksgiving is a necessity of the Christian life. But notice now our motivation for worship, our motivation for worship. Verse number five, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is our motivation for worship. Notice with me, it says that the Lord is good, meaning that he's full of generosity and his goodness is seen toward you. But not only that, he's morally good. We can trust that the Lord will always do what's right. And then it's his steadfast love endures forever, his covenantal love, this this bond that he has with his people that he promises to bless us, promises to be there with us through our times of need. But also the Bible says that his faithfulness endures towards all generation and the fact that God is faithful to his covenant. He will never break covenant with his people and that he will always be there to bless his people. Now, if you boil down this verse in verse number five, if you boil it down to its, its smallest part, what, what the word of God here is saying is that love should be our chief motivation for worship. That's why we worship, not out of obligation, not because we believe God is going to strike us down if we don't come to church or if we don't pray, but we should worship because we love the Lord. Now, this is significant because we live in a society today in which love is not the chief motivating factor for what is done. Think about it. Politicians uh, motivate us by preying on our fears, fear of the other whether that's fear of immigrants or fear of others on the opposite side and what they'll do if they get in power and they prey on our fears. Not only that, but they also prey on our anger, anger at what the other side is doing, anger at what the other side is saying. Could you believe they passed this law? Vote them out the next time you have a chance, right? They prey on our anger and they prey on our fears. And we see this even with some of the protesting, that there's a a latent frustration and anger over policing, and there are people that prey on that. And they whip people up in a frenzy. The society that we live in, think of how many things that people are motivated by love. Next time you watch a political ad, or next next time you even watch a commercial, you know, they don't tell you, buy your product because I love it. Buy it because it could save you money. Right? So greed is another motivation. Or covetousness is another motivation, but it's rarely love. And that's why verse number five is so precious to me, because verse number five tells me that I am called into worship because of the love of God. Because God loves you, he bids you to come and to enter in. And because of my love for him, I come and I participate in worship. 
Beloved, if you come to church out of obligation or tradition or, you, or fear, that's a problem. Because God doesn't bid you to come for those reasons. He bids you to come out of love and a desire to be with him. That's why God bids you to come. And what is all of this patterned after? Well, all of this is patterned after Christ. Christ never did anything out of fear or anger or frustration. Everything that Christ did was motivated out of love and love for us. The greatest act in the history of the world was Christ dying on the cross. And if you think of the cross, the cross is, uh, took place as a result of the love of the Father. John 3.16 tells us, one of the first verses I learned when I was growing up, for God so what? Loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his son out of love. But not only that, later on the Bible says, greater love has no man than this, than the man who laid down his life for his friends. Christ willingly went to the cross out of love. Out of love, not out of obligation, not because he was angry at anybody or frustrated at anybody and not motivated by any other thing but love. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, how is it that you and I worship out of love? Well, like Christ, it's going to take sacrifice. But we sacrifice out of love. It will take self-denial, but we do it out of love. Love for the Savior. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for the love of Christ constrains us. It constrains us. And that constraining love that he has for you sent him to the cross. And the constraining love you're called to have for him brings us and draws us into worship that we can fellowship with each other in union and communion. And so, beloved, as we even partake of the elements here today, do it out of love and desire for you to uh, commune with your Savior. And I hope that you're blessed indeed. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you that um, in your word, you direct us in how to worship. In your word, you direct us on what is expected out of us in worship. Lord, I pray that the people of CVBC, that we are a people that worship out of love, that serve out of love and a desire for one another. And Lord, in those moments, we are not loving. Help us to be thankful for what you have given us and help us to pursue love the constraining love of the Lord. Bless us now as we partake of the elements. May we be strengthened by this sacrament. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.